Well, if you all are familiar at all with my preaching style, you know I almost always begin with a story. And today, I have a story to introduce the sermon series, and then a story to introduce the sermon. So let me tell a story. One of my very favorite, my very favorite uh, professors at, uh, at Wesley Theological Seminary was Bobby McLean, who died just this last year. He was my preaching professor. And in addition to my preaching professor, I took preaching in the black tradition with him. And particularly strongly in my preaching in the black tradition class, Bobby said to us, you know, you all are focused, and the Christian church focuses so much on the resurrection but you cannot have the resurrection without the crucifixion. You cannot have Easter without Good Friday. You'd love to skip it, and most of us do. We avoid pain at all costs, but the truth is there is no resurrection without crucifixion. There is no Easter without Good Friday. Simply put. So for the next six weeks in preparation for Easter, uh, the next five, this is the first of the six weeks. The next five weeks, uh, we are gonna be talking about different characters who played a part in the crucifixion uh, and, and what part they played and what we know about them and what we can learn from them perhaps about their place in the story, why they were included, what matters about their story. So I am indebted to Bobby McLean for saying to me, we must, we must keep an eye on the cross, not just the empty tomb, because you can't have one without the other. And so for the next six weeks, our eyes will be, in fact, uh, Mark Hayes, who designs our worship message slide, which isn't, I thought it was behind me, but it's not. There it is. Uh, if you notice, I, this gives me several choices every week and invites us to think about it. I like the fact that in the distance of this beautifully brushed oil paint, there is the suggestion of the cross, because that is the backdrop that draws us to this story. For, uh, intriguingly enough, this week we're talking about Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate, uh, if you don't know anything about him, join the club. Most people don't know all that much about him. Uh, but I spent my entire week, and even before this week, reading as much as was available, which isn't much, about this man, Pontius Pilate. I personally, now here's my story, I personally was first exposed to Pontius Pilate when I went to worship as a small child, and we said the Apostles' Creed every week in worship. And, uh, a Pontius Pilate came uh, in the middle of the whole thing. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Skipped his entire life, go straight from being born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. I had no idea what Pontius Pilate was when I started saying that when I was like seven or eight years old. Uh, 
you know, what is to suffer under something? You know, was it a big rock named Pontius? I mean, what, what was it that weighed on Jesus that was that had, and it was Pontius Pilate. And then I learned more about him in confirmation, I'm sure, though I cannot remember it to save my soul. He gets mentioned, he gets into the picture every year uh, because we hear about him on the week of the crucifixion because he's the dude who uh, sentences Jesus to death. And just to kind of bring that out, by the way, this Pontius Pilate, uh, unlike some of the stories we've used, Pontius Pilate appears in all four Gospels. Now, the things he says and what he does in each one is different. But he appears in all four Gospels as the one uh, who sentences Jesus to death. So I thought I would uh, uh, just read a bit. This happens to be Matthew, the first of the Gospels, in order. You know, I could have read from Mark, Luke, or John. This one. So Pilate, in the story, seems to be ambivalent about whether he should put Jesus to death. I'm going to question that in the sermon, but for the moment, he seems to be ambivalent. And he offers up to the crowd, because it was apparently his annual uh, uh, celebratory thing to offer up one prisoner to be set free. In any case, he offers up two choices, Jesus or Barabbas. Uh, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor said again to them, and the governor is Pilate, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? All of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked Pilate, asked, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, handed him over to be crucified. Yep. Now, every once in a while, I hear sort of a romanticized story of the crucifixion. It's horrendous. It's ugly. There's nothing happy about it. Let's just get that out of the way. Uh, I still, to this day, find it hard and difficult to uh, call the Friday before Easter, Good Friday, because while it may seem good to us, it certainly wasn't good for Jesus. Uh, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. So what about this Pilate guy who sentences Jesus and in the Gospel of Matthew washes his hands, which, by the way, would have been completely uncharacteristic. It's not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. But it would have been completely uncharacteristic because that's more of something a Pharisee would do, not a Roman uh, governor. Here's what we know about Pilate, besides his claim to fame of sentencing Jesus to death. 
He is mentioned by two Jew Jewish historians, and we have found an inscription in 1961 with his name on it in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Caesarea on the coast of uh, the Mediterranean uh, towards the edge of uh, Israel. So we know that he existed, which is unusual. Of the many governors that have existed in, there were over 40 at a time uh, over the various provinces of uh, the Roman Empire. And because Judea and Samaria and Idumea, which was his appointed coverage area, because those were sort of nowheresville, no one from the Senate level, a proconsul, would be appointed to cover that area. It would have been someone of a military background, a prefect. Governor is kind of our way of understanding what he's about, but he would have been a prefect, someone in charge with the military background because his job was law and order, taxation, and judgment, uh, particularly capital judgment. Somebody needed to be put to death either an individual or a group of individuals, it ultimately rested in Pilate's hands. So he is remembered, the Bible does it for us, but so do Josephus, a Jewish historian, and uh, of course, I knew I would, uh, I, it would slip from me, uh, Philo, another Jewish historian uh, from Egypt, both mention him, because from their perspective, as Jewish historians, one of the things that he did was he liked to torment uh, folks of the Jewish descent. And he liked to do it in a variety of ways. For instance, as we all know, the first of the ten, one of the first of the Ten Commandments is you sh you, we can't make graven images. And they didn't like graven images anywhere, any images of anyone purporting to be God in Jerusalem. Well, the first thing he did after becoming governor at least according to the Jewish historians, was to hang images of Tiberius, the emperor, who was also considered to be God uh, by the Roman citizens. You know, you know, there were some Roman citizen atheists who didn't believe that he was God any more than just another you know, emperor, and there were others who did, but they wouldn't admit it out loud. So the bottom line was he did that. Tiberius heard about it, and asked him to take those down. Because Tiberius realized that this was just going to tick off the, the Jews who didn't like images. Later on, under his government, he also hung Roman banners in town, which also ticked off uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And during a, uh, a riot, Apparently, he was a little, bit, uh, uh, a little bit harsh, a little bit too harsh, which ultimately got him the loss of his job and apparently the loss of his life. Uh, he was called back to Rome, put on trial. We don't know exactly what happened to him. Some people think he committed suicide, either by order of the emperor or uh, because he was disgraced, or he was executed by the emperor, one or the other. It's not clear, and the historians didn't feel like it was important to write that down. So we know that, uh, we know that now on the other side, he must have been a great governor 
And you know why? The average governor, prefect, was appointed for one to three years. He was appointed from 26 to 37. He had 10 years, you know, as the governor. So he must have done a pretty good job of keeping those provinces in line, taking in enough taxes and keeping people from getting too stirred up and causing a problem so that the emperor had to send in a couple of legions. So as long as you can keep the emperor happy and keep the public open and happy, that's probably fine. So he must have done a pretty good job because he lasted for 10 years. So he's remembered for his brutality. He's, uh, he's remembered as antagonistic towards the Jewish religion, though as a whole, the Roman Empire, one of the first empires to do this, conquered an area and then let you keep your gods. Whatever your gods were, perfectly fine with us. We don't care what you do, as long as you pay us taxes and keep in line, we don't care. Now they ran into a problem in Judea because most of the other provinces were perfectly happy to worship Caesar and their gods, if that's what makes you happy. The Jewish people were not. So there was constantly little issues going on because of that. And maybe that was why, but we don't know that Pilate behaved that way, you know, did some things to kind of stir things up. Now it's interesting that all four gospels sort of play him as an okay guy. It's not his fault Jesus was killed. But the charge against Jesus that got him killed was treason. I don't, you know, treason is not a religious issue. <laughs> treason is, he said, king of the Jews. You remember that little sign that you see that's tacked at the top of Jesus? If you ever see one of his crosses, a crucifix in particular, with Jesus' body on it, at the top they have the Latin letters that look like I-N-R-I. Jesus, King of the Jews. That's what that stood for. That was the charge against him. Not that he said he was the Messiah or the Son of God or anything else. The charge against him was political. And that was what gave uh, Pilate the reason to crucify him. It doesn't, you know, we make it out to keeping the peace and it was the crowd's fault that he did it. He had any choice that he wanted to make as the governor. If he wanted to bring in his troops to quell the riot, he could have. In the end, he was perfectly fine crucifying this guy between two, uh, two criminals. He plays off that this is an innocent guy. I don't know what's wrong with him, what your bottom line is. But in the end, he crucified him for treason. Now, here's what I get from this wonderful story. That's an important lesson for me to learn. Now, it's not a deeply religious lesson, but it's a political lesson. And that's this. Politics is all about placating the public. <laughs> that's their job. That's their job. They do whatever work. Sometimes they stand up on a moral ground. But most of the time, whatever will get them reelected, or in this case, keep them from having a riot, is what they'll do. So it's questionable you should ever throw in with any political group whatsoever. Now you can vote one way or another, I don't care what the party is. But in the end, throwing in your lot and fully buying the bottom line is a little dangerous. 
Because their whole purpose is to placate you, not necessarily to teach you how to have the fullest life. And their interest is in keeping the greatest number of people happy, even if the greatest number of people want something terribly bad. Look at what happened to Jesus. The greatest number of people, if there was a crowd that said, let's just kill Jesus, crucify him, get rid of him, that was the loudest crowd. That was the loudest voice. And the loudest voice won. Pilate, with all of his power, chose to placate the crowd and crucify a man that, at least the Gospels say, in several instances, he considered to be innocent. So we have to be careful about where we expect our true life, the true freedom that God offers us to come from, because that freedom comes from God, not from any political system, not from any particular government, not from any particular president or senator or state governor or anybody else. In the end, the sense of freedom is something that happens within us, not without us. The freedom that comes to us from God can't be taken away. Do you know when Christianity grows the most? Under persecution. <laughs> Under persecution. When it recognizes that the government is not on its side. <laughs> its job isn't to be on its side. Do you know, we sent missionaries to China at, you know, later on, underground missionaries, after you know, they became communist, to try to plant Christianity. Christianity was already flourishing there. Flourishing. I mean everywhere, underground, all the time. And why was that? Because they didn't imagine that they owed any allegiance to the Chinese government and that the Chinese government had their back. They knew better. They knew the only one in the universe that might have their back was God. If I learn anything from looking at a pilot, I learn to remember to be careful in my political aspirations or my political collaborations because it will only go so far. It will only go so far. Does it mean I can't vote any particular way? Absolutely not. But does it mean that I expect my salvation to come from the Republicans, the Democrats, the anarchists, the communists, the socialists, or you name the government pattern? If I expect it to come from them, I'm going to miss the boat. <laughs> I'm going to miss the boat. And what's interesting as well is Pilate uses this particular passage for his own benefit because he gets a concession out of the Jewish leaders. You know what that concession is? The entire Hebrew Bible is about they have no king but God. And what do the religious leaders say? We have no king but Caesar. We ally ourselves with Caesar at the cost of Jesus. We'll do anything, anything to stamp out his message, anything. 
So is Pilate a good guy? Is Pilate a bad guy? Is Pilate a guy? Pilate is a guy. We, we got that. Our Ethiopian Orthodox sisters and brothers hold that he converted to Christianity after crucifying Jesus, and they made him a saint. So the Ethiopian Orthodox Church on June the 25th of every year celebrates the feast day of Saint Pontius Pilate. Um, on the other hand, is what he did the right thing to do? To placate the crowd? <laughs> you know, I can still remember mom saying to me once, I know you're watching mom, at least once, maybe more, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump off of a bridge? <laughs> Following the crowd is not, uh, you know, is, is not our calling. Just because everybody says it's right doesn't make it right. Just because it's what everybody wants doesn't make it the right thing to want. Be careful about placating crowds. Be careful about putting all of your hope and trust in any political system or party as your deliverer. Be careful. Be careful that the decisions you make and the life that you live is reflective of what you truly believe about the God of freedom and hope for you. If God's love for you and every other human being is unconditional and infinite, then no matter what political system you're under and no matter what someone else says or does, your job, your work, is to love them and to see in them the glory of God. Sometimes it's easier than others. Sometimes it's much easier than others. I spent this past week giving myself a challenge. I laid down a challenge. It was an interesting challenge. It was a challenge that was similar to uh, the days uh, in the early 2000s, when every day after we invaded Iraq, I prayed for Saddam Hussein. I prayed for him in spite of the fact that my nephew, who was a Marine at the time, was in, um, was in Iraq. My challenge to myself this past week, because I was feeling a tad bit frustrated, is I've been praying for the people who uh, created insurrection and attacked the Capitol. Because it angers me at the deepest core of what I thought the United States stood for. It bothers me, made me angry. And I said, you know, I don't need to be angry about this. I need to let this go. How can I do it? I'm going to pray for them. Because what I have found about prayer, this is not a segue necessarily, but what I've found about prayer is it, I'm not sure it changes anybody else. I know it changes me. If I pray for you, particularly if you frustrate me, if I pray for you, sincerely pray for you, my heart changes. I can't pray for people I hate. I just can't. <laughs> I can't pray for people I'm angry with. 
eventually, if I pray for them enough, I just can't be angry with them anymore. Because now they're a part of my prayer life, my God life. They're, and I recognize they're an extension of me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not as much as yourself, as yourself, as yourself. Great. So I spent the week praying for insurrections. People who make my blood boil. Even now, I can feel it. And so I'm going to have to keep praying for them, clearly, because it still stirs me up. It still stirs me up. It's hard to follow in the way of Christ. I don't know if Pilate ever converted to Christianity or not. I do know that he condemned Jesus to death. I do know that the charge he leveled against him had nothing to do with religion. It had everything to do with a crime against the state. And I know that he probably did it to save his own skin, but he had power to do something else, and he chose not to. Each one of you has power to make some choices in your life. I have some too. And the choices I have some control over, I need to be careful about how I make them. Because every choice I make shapes who I am. Every choice I make shapes who I am. What I know about Pilate tells me that the person he shaped himself to be was flawed just like I am, good or bad. Did God love him unconditionally and infinitely? Yeah, yeah. Did he respond in a way that God hoped? I don't think so. But neither do I all the time. Pontius Pilate is not just a name we say in the middle of the Apostles' Creed. And at St. James, we don't say the Apostles' Creed, so we never say it. <laughs> but if your congregation that you normally attend somewhere else says it, you know, you can hear it now, maybe with a little bit of a mixed emotion. What can I learn about this Pontius Pilate? How can I be, see myself in Pontius Pilate? And how can I rise above that? How can I rise above that? Because I don't want to be Pontius Pilate. I want to be me, the way God made me to be. So, with each successive week, some names that will be more and more familiar. For instance, we will talk about Peter. We're going to talk about Mary Magdalene. We are going to talk about Judas. And there are several others. They'll have to be surprises, even to me, because they're in a list and I can't remember them right now. So we'll get there. But I hope you'll join us with an eye toward the cross, recognizing the part we played in making that happen. Pilate condemned Jesus to death. That is the part he played, for better or worse. That's the part he played.